I was reminded this week of a story of a man who won a prized ham at a county fair. He came back, showed it to his wife, and they were all happy about it, excited, congratulating him, until she cut the end off of the ham as she was preparing it. He was shocked. He said, why did you do that? She said, what? He said, why did you cut the end off? She said, that's what you do. He said, no, it isn't. She, she said, yes, it is. That's how my mom used to make it. Let's give her a call. And so they get her on the phone, and she says, well, I, I know that we do it, but I can't remember why. My mom always did it that way. Let's give her a call. And so now they get grandma on the phone, and she says, well, I have no idea why you guys do it that way, but my pan was too small. And funny enough, this hilarious example is a great commentary on the first nine verses of the chapter to get us up to speed. (laughs) Forgetting why you do things and not pausing to ask the important, relevant questions of what really matters. (laughs) The religious leaders of Israel have been prioritizing their traditions over God's word. And it led to this confusing and contradictory system of works that looked nothing like what God had actually handed down to his church through the scriptures. And today's text really serves as a conclusion to what Jesus began teaching last week. So after sharply rebuking the Pharisees at the end of verse 9, where we concluded last week, Jesus calls the bystanders who heard what he said to himself to clarify what he said in verse 10, where he says, and he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. The Pharisees were no doubt shocked that Jesus would suggest such a thing, that it's not the intake of anything that defiles someone. As Jesus is going to point out, what defiles someone is already inside of someone and has been a part of them since Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world. And we rebelled against God. But the Pharisees and those who followed him, though, couldn't understand this as their whole religious system was built around this external and ritualistic stuff. Dietary restrictions, hand washings, tassels that you would wear, head coverings, even the circumcision. These are all external things. Things that they could clearly and easily look at you and see and then judge you to see how spiritual you really are based on how you present it outwardly. That's their whole system that they had built up. So Jesus saying, no, it's not the outside, but the inside was regretfully uh, a radical idea, even though it ought not to have been. But even as I'm saying that, don't think for a moment that we're any better in American Christianity today in the West. Now, a lot of our 
The way we present ourselves and the way we judge others often has far too much to do with the outside, things that we can measure just by looking at someone or hearing about some of the things that people do, rather than what God is actually changing in somebody's heart. I had a tragic thing happen to a friend of mine who attends another church who was denied something at their church because they weren't doing the Bible in a year program that particular year. And I say that particular year because they had done so in the past. So this person who's rebuking them, I mean, one for one, they're not reading their Bible particularly carefully. And secondly, they're acting every bit as much as a Pharisee as those who were in the first century, who we're reading about today, looking to the external measures rather than the internal things of the heart, judging someone in the very way we're told to withhold judgment. Now, we're going to come back around to clarify more about what Jesus says because he clarifies it more towards the end of the passage. But one thing's for sure, the disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus said. But they recognized a rebuke when they saw it and responded accordingly in verse 12, where it says, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? (laughs) I can't help but to laugh when I read that because (laughs) as we're about to see in Jesus' response, Jesus was fully aware and completely unbothered that he had just offended somebody. He knew what he was doing. You know, in Western culture, we, even in Christianity, we, we act like offending someone is the unpardonable sin. Oh, that somebody got offended by something I said, that's the worst thing that could happen. Hardly, though. You see, Scripture wisely differentiates between someone being rude and argumentative, which are bad things, and someone who merely offends others by firmly asserting the truth. Now, there is a wide chasm between those two thoughts. People who are offended by speaking the truth, you can't. there's no way you cannot say the truth to some people and them not be offended by it. And no matter what your tact is, it's not going to change them. You don't want to be a, a miserable, wretched, <laughs> argumentative person either. There's a balance to it. You know, we need to be reminded of this difference, that those who are needlessly offensive, yes, those people need to apologize and repent of that sin. But also recognize calling out hypocrisy is actually the godly thing to do. Shocking, right? like this book was written ahead of its time. It could have been written the gospel to the, Galatians, to the Galatians or to the Americans. Maybe we need a letter. We see Jesus' response either way in verse 13. It says, He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is that while Jesus interacted with many sinners of all different walks of life, he always called them to repentance, 
saying things like, go and sin no more to the, to the woman caught in adultery or to thieves that he interacted with and various types of sinners and tax collectors. Leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Being kind to the sinner but having a, a, a harshness to, towards the sin. But yet to the religious hypocrites, these are the only people Jesus really targets them as a person. Interesting. Very fascinating that he really that he's not targeting their sin, he's attacking their character. And the reason why is implied in the examples he's using here. Because he begins in verse 13 with what appears to be an allusion, a, a callback, if you will, to the parable of the weeds, the wheat and the tares, some of us might know it as. Essentially saying, through his language here, saying, they aren't of my father. They are sown by the enemy. And they will face the fate prescribed to the weeds from chapter 13. They will endure for a time, but be cast into the fire in the end. That's what Jesus is essentially saying there. And Jesus' instruction to his disciples to let them alone, just like the weeds. Let him sort them out at the end of the age. They are blind to how condemned they are, and no amount of effort from you is going to free them as they blindly march towards their own self-imposed destruction. You know, guys, we we got to think about it this way. You know, we're fortunate to live in a culture that has been shaped so much by the scriptures. I mean, we have 400 years of history with the Bible in our own language. Uh, the English language was still being developed as the Bible arrived in our language. So our common vernacular is very shaped through the scriptures. I mean, you can even, you can grab a an atheist stranger off the street, and they'll have heard the phrase, the blind leading the blind. They're familiar with it. It's a common phrase in the English language. And that's both fortunate and unfortunate because it's, it, it, we, we don't stop to think about how extreme of a picture this is. There is no more picture, you, more bleak that you can paint of a lost person than a blind person being led down the street by another blind person. I mean, could you imagine if you saw that out on Broadway? Somebody trying to cross the street with their walker, their, their, their walking stick, and there's another blind person in front of them leading them? I mean, you're going to get out of your car and help these people. You know something bad's about to happen. But could you imagine just for a second, if you did, if you saw that happen right out here, and you went out of your way to stop those people, and you approached them, and you say, hey, let me help you, and they're like, oh, what are you saying? I am not blind. I know exactly what I'm doing. How, who gave you, who, what gives you the nerve? How dare you judge me in my ability to see? But they're clearly walking. You guys get the picture. How disorienting would that be? You know, I believe it was Matthew Henry who once said that no man is so blind as he who refuses to see. Now, when painted that way, we begin to see the real problem was something much deeper than mere eyesight. 
It was the hardness of their hearts. Because, see, these people, they weren't confused like, for lack of a better word, a regular blind person would have fit into this analogy. Confused, struggling to find their way, trying to, trying to find the truth, but they have some obstacles, and Jesus would compassionately help them find their way, of course. But no, these people, these Pharisees, they're not lost, they're not confused, they are refusing to see the light in front of them. They are, they are steadfast, resolute in the wrong direction, unable, unwilling to be corrected. So just remember that, as, as, as I say that, that every person who was blind in the Gospels, literally or spiritually, if they came to Jesus, Jesus cured their blindness. He gave the truth to lost Gentiles. He literally restored the eyes of the actually physically blind. That when you, you brought your malady to Jesus, Jesus healed you and touched you. And Jesus, and had these Pharisees approached Jesus and admitted their own blindness and admitted, you got a point here, Jesus. Help us to see, help us understand. You know Jesus would have healed them and helped them. John chapter 9, a parallel passage, basically says as much, where the Pharisees uh, say, oh, are we blind also? And Jesus says to himself, hey, you have said it. Because you haven't seen, because, but because you say that you see, you shall remain blind, something to that effect. The disciples, however, are genuinely confused. They, they, they're trying to piece together what they have heard because they're coming out of this super outward-focused, super ritualistic, external-emphasized culture that, you know, they have questions. So, of course, the de facto voice of the group, good old Peter, asks Jesus the question in verse 15. Uh, Peter said to them, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Now that surprised me as I was doing my study. Sounds like Jesus is a little frustrated with Peter, isn't he? And funny enough, this, even this clarification doesn't finish this issue for Peter or the other disciples. They're still struggling with this issue of what you bring in and what actually defiles a person as far ahead into the story as Acts chapter 10, where it takes another vision from God to reveal the truth Jesus is trying to communicate here. Uh, and you can read that in your own time as God reveals it there. But the takeaway from this isn't necessarily the, dis the disappointment in a negative sense. You see, here's the thing. A, a big theme of the Gospels is the failure of the apostles. And you can trace that all over the Gospels. They don't, even despite spending more time on earth with Jesus than anyone else, they still didn't understand his teachings. They all scattered when Jesus was betrayed. Peter goes on to, de to, to deny Jesus three times. Jesus asks them to stay up and pray, and what do they do? They fall asleep. 
And even when Peter does have a moment where he seemingly has it together, making the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what's Jesus have to say to him next? Get behind me, Satan. Just a few minutes later on the timeline. And it's for a purpose that I think that God allowed the scriptures to be painted the way that they did. Why God merciful allowed the apostles to not get it. Because he wanted to emphasize beyond any shadow of any doubt for us who are reading the gospels 2,000 years later that there is one person who deserves credit for the victory over sin and that is Jesus Christ alone. That there is no credit for us to receive in our own salvation. It was Jesus alone that was sinless. It was Jesus alone who went to the cross and died for my sins. Jesus alone who endured the wrath of God. Oh, and the only thing that I did, the only contribution I made to the salvation story, was my sin that made salvation necessary. That's all I did to work towards my atonement. It's not anything to do with my good works or my work that I have accomplished. And it's, it's modeled in the apostles. I mean, they, they, they weren't even there to help Jesus in his final hours. But it's scattered everywhere. And the good that they do end up accomplishing. I guess they do some cool stuff in the book of Acts, but that's only after the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them. I mean, I guarantee you, if the Holy Spirit didn't fall in Acts chapter 2, it would have been a very different book. Much shorter. They stayed in the upper room and that was it. But there's... There's something good about this still, though, of reminding that even in our own personal life, even today, that it's not about my goodness, my righteousness, my good works, what I bring to the table that God is pleased in. It's the Holy Spirit working in and through me. That God doesn't even get just the glory for my salvation, but he gets the credit for my sanctification as well. The process of becoming more like him over time. Let me ask you a tough question to try to clarify this. Who wrote the book of Matthew? It's a kind of a trick question. From church history, you can determine it was Matthew. But was it just Matthew? No. No, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. And so... He wasn't the sole author of the book of Matthew. It was the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write down every single comma in the process. So it was the Holy Spirit working through him that wrote the book of Matthew. This, and we have to understand this. Because it becomes really practical when we ask the question from a slightly different angle. Who lives your Christian life? Is it just you? better not be. It better be you with the Holy Spirit empowering you for day-to-day -day life. Because even in my own story, I'm not the main character. In my own story, it's God's Holy Spirit within me, empowering me to resist temptation, empowering me to live the Christian life. 
and to grow in the ways that the scriptures instruct us to strive towards. That's even in my own life. It's not about me. Even that, it's about him. So with that in mind, let's hear Jesus' response to Peter's question in verse 17. As he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In Mark's gospel, he adds one more line that adds even more clarity. When speaking about what, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you eat food, it goes into the stomach, but they do not enter the heart, it says. That's why food doesn't defile anybody. Why the whole point of the old Levitical system and all of the legitimate hand washing uh, and, and ritualistic systems regarding food and dietary restrictions was to point to a future reality. Because it wasn't about the external things. It was to point that there's something wrong with our hearts. That was the point the whole time. Because... Those things don't defile us unto themselves, though, as they do not enter the heart. Because true defilement, what truly contaminates us, what truly decays us and separates us from God, has nothing to do with these hands or what we put into our mouth. It has nothing to do with what we wear or where we go. The matter is the heart. Because out of that, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We saw that a few chapters ago right here in Matthew. And this is crucial to understanding the point of this text. And I hope that you hear this, church. Whether I yell curses at you or whether I pray for you has nothing to do with what I had for breakfast. As cranky as I get when I skip breakfast. It still has nothing to do with that. It's the state of my heart. And neither are my mouth or my hands inherently sinful unto themselves. They only will express what's in my heart. I mean, just look at this list of sins that Jesus lists here in Matthew 15. I mean, we discussed murder way back in the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of you guys might remember that. Where, yes, murder is a sin, But where does that sin originate from? It originates from the anger that I have in my heart. And when that anger in my heart is expressed through the hands, well, then that becomes murder. But it was only expressing the sin that was already there the whole time in my heart. The problem is much deeper than it seems at the surface level. It's the same thing with the sins listed here of adultery and sexual immorality. Jesus said that those sins proceed from lust. 
And that makes you guilty because, you know, our hearts are defiled by it, by what we allow in through the eyes into the heart. Now, the root for all of these things, every sin listed here, isn't the external things, the the hand washings, the ceremonial rituals, the circumcisions, all of those things. It comes from the heart. A heart that has been defiled since sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3. Where that sin that had made that same heart deceitful above all things, according to Jeremiah 17.9. And out of that heart, a heart that is wicked, evil, sinful, out of that do our actions proceed. So hear me, church. If you hear nothing else, hear this. This is why Jesus came crusading against this outward-focused religion and why our outward-focused tendencies can be just as bad because focusing on the outward does nothing to change the inward problem in my heart. It does nothing. And you can go, I mean... It's why it's literally offensive to suggest that our good works, our church attendance, partaking in religious rituals can earn us righteousness or earn our way into heaven. Because it doesn't even touch upon the problem. You can go your whole life doing all of those things, dedicating to fixing all the outward stuff and never address your heart. Be the same selfish, broken, sinful person at the end of the day. And avoiding the one thing that does defile you. So what we need isn't a reform of the outward things. We need an utter transformation from the inside. And what do you know when you actually read the scriptures without polluting it with all of the tradition that man tried to add to this over the centuries? That's what you find. When you read Ezekiel 36, 26, we're seeing how God promises to give you a new heart. That's what we need. We need the clean heart and the right spirit that David prays for in Psalm 51. We need to be the new creation that Paul has called us to be in 2 Corinthians 5.17 for all who are within Christ. And most telling of all, Jesus said himself that you need to be born again. A complete transformation from the inside. All of you needs to be made new. Do you hear the difference between being made this new creation and just the difference of washing your hands? The legalists of all the ages desire simple change on the surface level. But what the Bible actually calls for in the Old and New Testaments is a complete transformation from the inside out. A new heart, a new spirit, a new creation, a new birth. And what upsets these Pharisees is that none of those things are things you can change. The power isn't within you to be born again. The power isn't within you to become a new creation. You can't do that. 
But Jesus can do that, changing us from the inside by the power of his gospel and by trusting in him to complete that work in us, by letting God do the transformation construction project and just letting myself allow him to do his work. Now, do our outward works matter? Of course they do. They they ought to reflect this inward change that takes place inside of us. If our works do proceed from the heart, then once the Holy Spirit is transforming our hearts, our outside actions should change as well. It's a one-way street, however, and I hope that this is what we hear this morning. If you change your heart, your works will necessarily follow. If you change your works, there's no promise that your heart will follow. You can still just be a selfish person if you commit to doing community service. You can do your however many thousands of hours of community service and hate every minute of it. People do. But once your heart is changed by Christ, once you have that new heart and that new spirit of God within you, Oh, there's a complete change. Serving others, loving your neighbor as yourself, just comes naturally at this point. Something that no force on earth could force you to do before, you want to do naturally. Because that's the power of God working in your life. So yes, of themselves, our works only brought defilement. Not righteousness, as the Pharisees believed, But true defilement comes not from particular types of hand washings or legalistic services or failing to follow the popular evangelical trend of the age. It comes from our sinful hearts. But most beautifully, in reverse manner, true righteousness does not come from within. True righteousness comes from outside ourselves which is the whole point of the gospel. And what we saw when we read Romans chapter 3 a few minutes ago as as our first reading. Let me skip around through it a little bit where it said, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this was to show God's righteousness. You see where all the emphasis is. All of that righteousness doesn't come from you or me or anything we do. It's a gift. It is imparted. It was given to us by God. The righteousness that we live in, that we stand in, of itself is a gift from God. True righteousness comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21, what has been called the great exchange, where Jesus on the cross took and bore all of our sin and guilt and shame. And in return, he gave us the most one-sided deal ever recorded, giving us the gift of his righteousness, of his sinlessness, so that when God looks God looked upon 
Jesus on the cross, he saw your sin, he saw your shame, and bore and poured out his wrath upon Jesus that should have been ours. But now when he looks at us today, he doesn't see that sin, guilt, and shame anymore. That's all been dealt with. Now when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of God. He sees the sinlessness of Christ that has been given to you as a gift. This is the core of the gospel. This is the reason why we can gather together with like many other churches throughout the ages on a Sunday morning to rejoice over these truths. Because this is great news. That it's not something I had to stir up within myself, but this true righteousness came from outside in. So, the answer to our dilemma of defilement and righteousness is not to look within. If we look within, there's nothing but brokenness and sin. But instead, for our righteousness, we look out. Not to ourselves, but for our, the source of our righteousness is to look to the cross. Where Jesus bore the, took away my sins and gave me the gift of his righteousness. So if you haven't done so already, forsake all of these other things. None of that other stuff is going to satisfy. None of our works or ceremonies or legalistic ways can ever provide the righteousness that Christ has already provided for you. Look to the cross and trust him today. Thanks be to God.